thank you for tuning in to the Preaching Workshop podcast. You can find more information as well as materials and resources at graymere.com slash pwpodcast. And also you will find different uh, information from all the other past preaching workshops that we have. And this is from 2021. This was our final speaker the afternoon of February 22nd, 2021. The Psalms and our sermons, preaching tips and sermon starters from Wes McAdams. Those were really nice words, and it almost makes up for having me speak after those three guys this morning and this afternoon. I, <laughs> I sat there and kept thinking, I can't believe I'm going to have to follow all of these guys, especially after Justin told us that I have been completely wrong about what I thought about the Psalms all these years. So I have no idea what I'm going to talk about, but I'm glad to be here. If it's okay, let's, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we... We are incapable of adequately proclaiming the good news that you have given us to proclaim. But Father, we are so grateful to have the opportunity to share with the people that we love how much you love them and how much you have done to save them and reconcile them to yourself. Father, we pray that as we continue to think together about how best to present the good news of Jesus, the story of Scripture, your promises and your deeds to your people, that you will give us boldness and passion and courage to speak your words as you would have us to speak them. Father, thank you for the opportunity that you give us week in and week out to encourage your people. And Father, we pray that you bless us as we attempt to do so. Father, it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So I just want to give you a few of my thoughts. I'm not an academic like these other guys that have been sharing with us this morning and and this afternoon, but I've been so incredibly blessed by everything that has been said today. I feel like my bucket is just overflowing, so I feel like in some ways my job is really easy because our buckets are already full, and so whatever I say or don't say, maybe you'll give me a pass, but uh, I I don't have any of the, the kind of insight that they had to share, but I just want to share with you some of the things that I do and some of the things that I think about as I prepare a sermon or a series. I I don't know how you guys plan your sermons, but I plan mine. I try to plan them before the year begins. So I planned all of 2020 sermons in 2019, and I had no idea what was coming in, in the coming year. But I'll tell you this, I don't think I changed any of my plans in 2020. Uh, That's not to say if if you did change your plans that that's a bad thing because sometimes we do have to be flexible and change what we had planned. But I was amazed every month, every week as I would open up and think about what I had put down on paper a year before or six months before. And I would look at that and I would think that is incredibly relevant for what's going on right now. And so as I I opened up the text that week and began to write down how I was going to share the the good news with people that week, it was amazing to me how the text that had been chosen a year in advance or six months in advance was incredibly relevant. And really, that's the first point that I want to make is that we have to preach relevantly. We have to help our people see how the Psalms give voice to our feelings, our thoughts, and our situations. And I I love that that's something that's been emphasized 
all day today about feelings and emotions. I don't know about you, but that the first uh, Jordan shared with us the emojis. I'm definitely stealing that. That's going to become a series. I love that idea, and I love the idea of, of helping our people to understand that these psalms give voice to our feelings, to our emotions, that it's okay to feel how you feel. So often we tend to focus on what people think, and that's good. We need to focus on what people think and how to help them to think more biblically, how to help them think more like Jesus. But we also have to touch on the way that people feel because so often we live our lives by what we feel. Even if we think we're living by what we think, we're really living by how we feel. And so much of the decisions that people make day in and day out are anchored in the way that they're feeling. And we have to touch on those things and present lessons that help people to know that God knows and God cares what they're feeling, what they're thinking, and the situation that they're in. And I think that we have, to, we have to start here. When we preach and teach, I think it's best to at least touch on these relevant themes as we begin our lesson. I don't know about you, but I prepare and study inductively, which means that we, we, we study through what does it say, what does it mean, and then how does it apply always comes last. Right? When we're studying, we're asking, how does this apply to my situation, to this situation, to this current modern context? We're asking that question last. If we ask that question first, we get into trouble and we try to take a, a square peg and fit it in a round hole. So we have to answer that question last. How does this apply today when we're studying? But when we're preaching and teaching, I think a lot of times we have to start at least with the application or the promise of application. We have to let people know from the beginning there is going to be a payoff, right? Because as Brother Sam shared with us in the last hour, our people are sitting in these pews and they have a lot of things going on in their life, a lot of things going on in their heart. They're struggling with emotional problems or financial problems, career problems, problems with their family, problems with their friends, problems at work, problems at school. And they've got a lot of things on their mind and we have to let them know from the beginning why it's gonna be worth it to listen to what we have to say. There's gonna be some people that are just, they're just there and they're just happy to be there and whatever you say, they're along for the ride, right? They're gonna listen all the way to the end. They just wanna know what does the scripture have to say today and they just are gonna pay attention to the whole thing. But some people, a lot of people, are only gonna listen to the end if you tell them in the beginning why it's going to be worth it. And so you share with them, this is, this is a problem we all have, or this is a question we all have, or this is a feeling we all experience, or this is something that if you're not dealing with this now, chances are you've dealt with this in the past or you're gonna deal with it in the future. And that, this is why I really like Andy Stanley's um, outline of me, we, God, you, we. I don't know if you guys can see that or not, but this is the template. This comes from Andy Stanley's Communicating for a Change. Now, I don't always give a, a, an addendum on, on, on references or resources. I'm not a huge fan of Stanley's theology, but I love his outline structure. And this is the template that I use for every sermon that I put together. I, I start at the top of it, and I, I don't fill in the very top until I'm completely done 
but I want to know what does God want us to know, what does God want us to do, and what's one sticky statement, what's one statement that it might rhyme, it might stick in their head, it might have an alliteration, but one point, one point. Growing up, I heard lots and lots of sermons with lots and lots of points, and I didn't remember any of them. If I walked away remembering anything, I might remember one point that the preacher made. So I decided, especially after reading Stanley's book, that I was going to try to make one point in my lessons. And so I'm going to write that down at the top of my paper, at the top of my notes, so that I can look at that Sunday morning, I can look at that Saturday night, and I remember this is the one point. If I make no other point in this lesson today, I want to make this point. So here's what God wants people to know. Here's what God wants people to do. Here's one point that I want to make today. And then I outline it the way Stanley does in his book, Me, Starting With Yourself. And it's really easy to tell a story on yourself. It's really easy to say, okay, here's, how I, here's a mistake I made this week. Or here's a mistake I've made before. Or here's a problem that I've experienced. Or here's a question that I have. Here, here's a feeling that I've felt. Here's something that I've dealt with in my family. And so not only are you relating to them, but you're helping them to relate to the question or the problem that you're going to share about. You're going to, you're helping to connect them. And the way Stanley puts it in the book, it's like a 18-wheeler, and sometimes we're, we're, we're in the tractor of the 18-wheeler, and we're driving down the highway, and we forgot to attach the trailer, and the trailer is the audience. And we're going on the trip without the trailer. And we have to attach it first before we take them on the trip with us. We want them to go with us on the journey. And in order to make them go with us on the journey, we have to make sure that we're attached in the very beginning. So we, he, he suggests that we begin with ourselves. Here's a question I have. Here's a problem I have. Here's a mistake that I've made. And then we turn it to we. We've all made this mistake, haven't we? We've all struggled with this, haven't we? We've all asked this question, haven't we? we? We've all had this feeling, haven't we? And so then you're helping them to see, I'm not talking down to you. I'm not telling you you're, you're, you've messed up and I haven't. We're all in this boat. We all have this problem. We all have this question. We all struggle with this. So whatever it is that we're going to get to in the text, we help them to see in the very beginning, this is relevant. Whether you're a mom or you're a dad or you're a son or you're a daughter or you're a brother or a sister, whether you're, you're struggling with doubt or fear or anger or jealousy or bitterness, whether you're happy or sad, here's something that we struggle with. And helping them to see from the very beginning, this is going to pay off. So this, this past November, I decided that I was going to have a a series on gratitude, because it was going to be Thanksgiving, right? And we were going to have a series on gratitude. I thought, 30 days of thanks. That'll be a great series for Thanksgiving. We'll do 30 days of thanks, and I'll encourage the congregation every day, share something that you're thankful for, share it with your family, share it on social media. We'll do 30 days of thanks. And November started on a Sunday, and I thought, that's perfect. And then 30 days, we can encourage the congregation, 30 days of thanks. I didn't know what November of 2020 was going to be like. And, and then we had this whole year leading up to, in November, the election, right? And I knew that we have a congregation of people that are feeling anything but thankful, anything but grateful. And, and then we're going to have an election pretty soon, and at least a portion of our congregation, no matter how it turns out, there's going to be some people who are going to be devastated and who are not going to be thankful about the way things turn out. 
You've got people that are angry. You've got people that are sad. You've got people that are disappointed. You've got people that are preparing to be angry and mad and disappointed. And and so you've got a congregation that's not feeling grateful. So when you start a series on gratitude in a situation like that, that's where you start, right? You let people know, "I, I know this is how we're feeling. We're frustrated. We're in the middle of a storm. There is a storm going on right now. But, but here's the point that I made in, in that first sermon, that it's easiest to give thanks in the sunshine, right? That's easy. Anybody can give thanks in the sunshine, but most important to give thanks in the storm. And that's what I wanted them to understand, that it's easy to give thanks when the sun is shining. It's easy to give thanks when you're comfortable. It's easy to give thanks when you're rich. It's easy to give thanks when you're healthy. It's easy to give thanks when things are going well. It's difficult, but most important to give thanks in the middle of a storm. Because it's in the middle of a storm when you can remember, what is it that I'm supposed to be grateful again for again? What are the things that I'm supposed to be thankful for? Then, then we can really begin to, to make the kind of progress that Psalms encourages us to make. And so I talked about Psalm 57 in that first lesson. Five things to be thankful for from Psalm 57, because Psalm 57 is a psalm of gratitude and thanksgiving, but it's also one that's in the midst of a storm. The title will tell you that this is when David is in the cave. He's in the middle of a storm. He's hiding from Saul. It's easy to give thanks when you're in the palace, but it's most important to give thanks when you're in the cave. It's easy to give thanks when, when you're living in comfort and ease, but it's most important to give thanks when you're in the middle of incredibly difficult situations. So verses one through two, that here's five things you can give thanks for. That God is my place of refuge. You can give thanks for that no matter what's going on. That God is your refuge. That God, number two, that God sends help when I'm in trouble, verse three. Number three, that I can acknowledge dangers and difficulties without losing faith. I think that's something that the Psalms give us, isn't it? The permission to acknowledge dangers and difficulties without losing faith. That's something that lament gives us permission to do. To say, this stinks. This is horrible. This hurts. This shouldn't be this way. This isn't fair. And I think a lot of our people, they've never been given permission to acknowledge the difficulty and danger of life because they try to dismiss it, don't they? When when there's bad things happening, then they say, no, 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 it's not really so bad. Here's a thousand reasons why it's not really so bad. No, you, you need to be able to acknowledge the dangers and difficulties of life. You need to be able to acknowledge this shouldn't be this way, and this hurts, and I don't want it to be this way anymore, without losing faith, anticipating that God will save. Number four, that God will deal with evil, verses five and six, and then number five, that God rules over the earth. These are the kinds of things that you can give thanks for in the midst of the storm, but what is it that we tend to do, especially as 21st century Americans, when things are are difficult. When we're in the midst of a storm, we tell people, count your blessings. And what do we mean by that usually? Well, you got your health, and you got your family, and you got, you got plenty of money, and you got a house, and you got a car, and you got, well, guess what? Hopefully the last year has told us that all of those things are uncertain. 
that we cannot rest our certainty, we cannot anchor our faith to uncertain things. These are things, though, these are things that you can always be thankful for. Even when you lose your family, even when you lose your home, even when you lose your health, even when the storm is worse than you ever thought it was possible to be, we've got to stop having people anchor their gratitude and their faith and their trust in things that can be taken away, but to anchor their faith and trust in God. So again, if we start with, here's why this is relevant, before we exegete, before we expose the text and say, here's what it says, and here's the historical context, here's all of these cool little nuggets, here's what the Hebrew means, and before we get to any of that, we have to promise them, and then eventually fulfill our promise, this will be worth it. I promise, hang with me, and this is going to be worth it, because this is a question we all have, or this is a problem we all have. We all struggle to give thanks in the midst of a storm, or we all struggle with this, or we all struggle with that, or we all have this question, and then show them how the text answers that. Okay, number two, preach historically. We have to help people to think beyond this present moment, and I think the Psalms are really good to help us celebrate what God has done in the past, and anticipate what God will do in the future. In fact, those are my two favorite words when it comes to Psalms, celebrate and anticipate. When you think about all of the lament, all of the, the penitent Psalms, they're all an anticipation. Even the imprecatory Psalms are anticipating God's salvation, right? Even when the psalmist is saying, this isn't fair, God show up, do something, you can't let me suffer this way. Even that is anticipating God doing something because you wouldn't tell God to do something unless you actually thought he would and he could. You wouldn't waste your time. Somebody who doesn't believe in God isn't going to waste their time telling God how unfair the situation is. We only tell God how unfair the situation is or we only tell God how sorry we are if we anticipate he's going to forgive us or he's going to fix the situation. But in order for people to really embrace this, we have to help them to get out of the present moment because we, we tend to be a whole lot like our kids. I, I've got a nine-year-old and a 12-year-old, and especially my 12-year-old, I'm sure he's not watching the live stream, and I, I know he won't listen to this later, but especially my 12-year-old really struggles with saying things like always and never. And when we say always and never, what we're doing is we're projecting our present circumstance back on the past or onto the future, right? We're saying this is the way that it is right now, and because this is the way that it is right now, this is the way it's always going to be, or it's never been any different than this. And we project the, our present circumstance on the past and on the future. And that's really unhealthy, isn't it? Because we're saying it's always going to be this way, or it's never going to get any better, and you've, you've never done this for me, or you never show up, or you never deliver me, or you never help me. My, my circumstances are always bad. And so one of the things that we can do as preachers is help our congregations to think historically, think beyond their present circumstances, even think beyond their own lifetimes, to, to broaden their perspective, to think of the entire story of Scripture. Jordan started this morning by helping us to see that the Psalms move the people of Israel through the story of Scripture, through all of the things that God has done for them. 
not just for them personally, but for them historically. And we can help use, we can use the Psalms to help our people think historically. Here's, here's an example in Psalm 105. Here's what I had to say about that when I preached on that. It's hard to maintain gratitude when our outlook is limited to our present situation. It's hard to maintain gratitude when our outlook is limited to our present situation, right? If that's all we're thinking about, and, and chances are that's all our congregation is thinking about, right? When they show up on a Sunday morning, what are they thinking about? Our present situation. And we have to acknowledge that and acknowledge, yep, I know, I'm thinking about our present situation too. I'm thinking about COVID, or I'm thinking about our racial situation in our country, or I'm thinking about the election, or I'm thinking about this, or I'm thinking about that. And we're all thinking about that. We all have these things on our mind. We're thinking about our present situation. But then using the Psalms, we can help them to think historically. Think about the big picture of Scripture. Think about the story of Scripture, because that's the story into which we're stepping when we become Christians. And that's the, that's the beauty and the joy of what we get to do is help them to think beyond their present situation. That's what we do with our kids, isn't it? When our kids say, you never do this for me, or you're always this way, or this is always the way it's going to be, we say, wait, 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 well, wait, you remember last week when I let you do what you wanted to do? You remember when this happened? You remember when that happened? And we help to broaden their perspective. When our, when our perspective is always limited to our present situation, it's hard to be grateful I mean, we may be grateful in the situations that are good and easy when we're in the sunshine, but we're going to be like a roller coaster. And I don't know about you, but it's felt like the last year has been a roller coaster, hasn't it? Where our people are up one minute and then they're down the next minute. We get a little glimmer of hope and then it's back down. And we're just on this roller coaster, but we don't have to be. If we have this broader perspective that's historical and we see the whole scope of Scripture, what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do, then we can break free from that. So, I mean, think about Psalm 105, verse 5. He says, remember the wondrous works that God has done, his miracles and the judgments that he uttered. Now, the psalmist isn't just saying, remember what God has done in your own lifetime. I mean, that's good, right? We can do that with our congregation. We can say, hey, hey, I know you're feeling like God has abandoned you. And I know you're feeling like things are never going to get any better. And I know you feel like it's always going to be this way. And you can think about times in your life where God has blessed you and God has done good things for you. But what about somebody that's had 20 years of feeling this way? Or 30 years of feeling this way? Where their life doesn't seem to be a bed of roses at any point in their life. What are we going to tell those people? We have to have a perspective that's even broader than our own lifetimes. So when the psalmist says, remember what God has done, he's not saying remember what God did in your lifetime. He's saying remember what God did in the lifetime of our people. And then he walks them through the Exodus account, and he says, this is what God has done. And when we, when we see things through that perspective, that historical perspective, then we can be people of gratitude because remembering what happened in the past gives us courage for the future, right? We can face the future and know God will deliver. God will make things better. God will keep his promises, not based on what I experienced 10 years ago, not based on what I experienced 20 years ago, but what I experienced 2,000 years ago because of what God has done historically, what God has done in Scripture. 
And then look at the latter part of Psalm 105. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing, and he gave them the lands of the nations, and they took possession of the fruits of the people's toil, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. Now, Justin told us that they didn't sing this, and that's fine, but why do you suppose, why do you suppose that these things were important for the Israelite people to hold on to? Why? Why was it important for them to rehearse this story over and over and over and over again, generation after generation, so that they remembered what God will do in the future? Because they had the same problem we have, that their perspective was limited so often to their present situation. And they needed to be a people that year after year after year, they rehearsed the big picture of what God has done. And so it's good to say, hey, remember when God blessed you last year? Or remember 10 years ago when this good thing happened in your life? I mean, that's fine. But let's help people to understand that the best thing that's ever happened to them happened 2,000 years before they were even born. And that's the best thing that's ever happened or will ever happen to them. Because gratitude for what God has done in the past gives them courage for the future. And so the psalmist doesn't just want them to be historians, to sit around and say, yes, God did some wonderful things. He wants them to embrace the confidence and the assurance of knowing that God will deliver us from our present situation, whatever our present situation is, because of what he's done in the past. And having this historical gratitude, this gratitude about what's happened in the past, will give us courage for the future. Number three, preach collectively. This is kind of my soapbox lately. That we have to help our congregation see ourselves as part of a collective people, rejoicing in shared blessings and lamenting shared pains as we, sorry, sing the Psalms with and to one another, right? Shared blessings, shared pains. We live in a very individualistic culture where we tend to think about me, myself, and I, whereas the Bible is written in a collective culture. And even if it wasn't written in a collective culture, it calls us to be a collective people, God's people collectively. And we have this opportunity every time we preach to our people to help them see that they are not alone. Not only is God with them, but we're in this, I know we've said this a lot in 2020, but we are in this together. Whatever this is, not just COVID, we're in everything together. We are one body. And so we have to preach collectively. I, I believe that's how the Psalms were always used. I, I mean, it's a relatively recent invention that individual people of God can take the scriptures in their own home or on their own tablet or phone or whatever and read the Bible by themselves. In fact, I like to say that it's not wrong to read the Bible individually. That's good. We should encourage our people to read the Bible individually, but it is wrong to read it individualistically, right? It's not wrong to read the Bible on your own. In fact, we've talked about that quite a bit today. Using scripture, using the Psalms and our personal devotionals, that's fine as long as we see ourselves as a part of a collective people. I never forget one time I was talking with my cousin, my first cousin at a family reunion. I just wanna set up how, how dumb I was being in this moment, but my cousin and I were flipping through a photo album 
at a family reunion and I saw a picture of my grandmother and I said to my first cousin, that's my grandmother. And he's like, well, I know, that's my grandmother too. And she had passed away years before, but I, I just, I didn't even think in that moment, that's not my grandmother, that's our grandmother. I was claiming ownership above his. And I think so often we tend to do that. It's not wrong to pray, my Father who is in heaven, but Jesus taught us to pray, our Father who is in heaven. It's not just me and Jesus. It's not just me and God. But a lot of our congregation thinks about it that way. They think about their faith that way. They think about their relationship with God that way. And there's a certain aspect of that that's good. We want them to be personally invested in their faith. We want them to take their, their faith seriously personally, but we also want them to see that they're part of a collective people. A book that's been really helpful to me lately has been misreading scripture with individualist eyes, just to help me to see how easy it is to read the Bible through a individualist lens. I, I, I've been saying to the congregation lately that we tend to personalize scripture, and I think that can be good, to read the you as Wes or whoever you are. It's okay to personalize scripture, but we also need to pluralize scripture. And I'm not even sure if that's a word or not, but I, I like it. We don't need to just personalize scripture, we need to pluralize scripture because most of the time, especially in the New Testament, when you see the word you, we know that it's y'all, right? It's all y'all, it's, it's collective, it's plural. He's not just tying to one individual, but if we read the Bible as if God is just speaking directly to me instead of to us, to we, then we're reading it wrong. And I think the Psalms can really help us to do that, help us to help our congregations to read it collectively. Look at Psalm 85. Some, some Psalms are written with a collective from a collective perspective, restore us again, O God of our salvation. Put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. So there's this collective anticipation. God will deliver us and praying together for God to deliver us, to save us. And if we're not careful, our people can be very individualistic where they're just thinking about their own personal relationship with God. But then when things like this happen that we're all going through together, it's not just about any one individual, it's about us. It's about doing what's right for us and helping us and working together and actually being the body of Christ. And many of the Psalms are written from that collective perspective. Look at verse 8. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land." So God's covenant, we know this, don't we? But I don't know that our people really internalize this. That God doesn't make a covenant with individuals, but with his people. 
And, and, and we need to call our people together to collective repentance, but also to pray together for collective deliverance, that these are shared blessings and shared pains. But then it really struck me that, that sometimes there's even psalms that are written from a personal perspective, but still have collective application. That however these psalms were used historically, they were part of Israel's shared collection of Scripture. So even if this is David talking about his personal relationship with God, the Israelite people held on to this psalm, the Jewish people held on to this psalm because it was not only true of David personally, but was true of Israel collectively, right? And so it isn't just that the Lord is my shepherd, that's true. And every person, every individual needs to embrace that truth, that the Lord is my shepherd, but he's not just my shepherd, he's our shepherd. He makes us to lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside still waters. And I think even when we, even when we preach this, we can help them to see that. We can help them to see that these things are true, not just of you personally, because you're not just in this by yourself with God. We're in this together. He's made a covenant with us, not just with you. But think about the way that we tend to read Psalm 23 or the way we tend to meditate on Psalm 23. And again, it's a lot like me saying to my cousin, that's my grandmother. Yeah, but she's our grandmother. It isn't just, Yahweh isn't just your shepherd, he's our shepherd. He's leading us. Not you by yourself and me by, your, by myself and them by themselves, but us together. He's leading us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So preaching the psalm should draw us together in our shared celebration and our shared anticipation, right? This is a shared anticipation. Together we become Israel. We become the new Israel, we become the Israel to whom God has kept his promises, that God has been faithful. So every psalm that asks the question, God, will you show up? Will you deliver your people? Will you keep your promises? The church gets to say, amen, he has. And we celebrate together that we, the nations, not just ethnic Israel, but Jews and Gentiles have been brought together and we are the people who have a shared covenant with God because God has kept his promises. So we get to share that celebration and then we also become the Israel that continues to wait because there's still a lot of pain and every anticipating psalm that says, how long, Lord, will you show up? Will you keep your promises? Will you do what you say you'll do? We're still anticipating but our anticipation isn't just individual, it's collective, it's shared. And we have to help our people to know that, that this is a shared celebration and a shared anticipation. You're feeling alone and you're feeling discouraged and you have doubts and you have fears and, and you wonder why does this injustice take place? Why does this tragedy take place? Why do these things happen? We're wondering about that together. Israel always wondered about that together. This idea of just taking the Bible by myself into my room and just studying it and meditating on it and wrestling with it by myself and then encouraging every Christian to do the same, that's a relatively new thing, right? It's a relatively new thing that people had their own copy of the Bible. 
we've always done this together as a community, both in ancient Israel and in the church, and we should be doing that today. It's, again, it's not wrong to read the Bible individually, but it is wrong to read it individualistically. We have to understand that these are shared celebrations and shared anticipations. And then finally, number four, preach, preach Christologically. Help us see to celebrate and anticipate Christ and his kingdom through the Psalms. I, I love the way Tim Keller is, is one of those authors and preachers that, that has this ability to take current events and the current way of thinking and then tie that together with the scriptures and then help people to see Jesus in the scriptures. And I think that every time we present any passage of scripture, and it's so easy to do so many times in the Psalms, we have to help people to see Jesus. I was thinking about Psalm 23 and how we could preach Psalm 23 Christologically. Because when, when the psalmist says, the Lord is my shepherd, the emphasis isn't on the Lord is my shepherd, the emphasis is on the Lord. Yahweh is my shepherd. As opposed to who? Anybody else. Any other God. Any other king. Any other Messiah. They're not my, they're not my shepherd. Yahweh is my shepherd. He's the one that leads me. He's the one that will deliver me. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I won't fear any evil. Why? Because Yahweh is with me. Because he is guiding me. Because he is my shepherd. And so, obviously, when we preach Christ in Psalm 23, Jesus is our shepherd. Jesus is the one who is leading us and guiding us. But it's also an admonition not to trust in other kings, not to trust in other gods, not to trust in other messiahs. And isn't that a relevant topic for our people? Don't we have this tendency to get afraid when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death and put our trust in other kings and other princes and other messiahs? And so when we preach the Psalms, we should preach them Christologically. And I think about how so many of the Psalms, in fact, this is a series I want to do about how the, the titles or the categories that the apostles used to describe Jesus they didn't make up these categories, right? When, when the apostles like Peter or Paul or whoever wrote Hebrews, when they described Jesus as the Messiah and then they used various categories to describe him, they didn't make up those categories out of thin air. These were deeply rooted in the Psalms. As it's been said several times today, the New Testament quotes the Psalms over and over again to describe Jesus. So when we see the Messiah in the Psalms, we see him as Psalm 2, we see him as the Son of God, right? That the King is God's Son. The Lord said to me, you are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. He ends by saying, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So this psalm as an enthronement of the king could be a celebration and an anticipation that the Messiah will come and that the Messiah, the son of David, will not just be the son of David, but will be the son of God, that he will be God's son. And that if you curse him, you better watch out because you'll be his enemy. And if you kiss him and you give your loyalty and your faith to him, then you will be favored by him. 
So Psalm 2 preaches the gospel, doesn't it? And so again, the, the apostles didn't make up these categories. The Son of God, the Son of Man, Psalm 8. The Son of Man. Again, it was quoted earlier, Psalm 8 and verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him? and the Son of Man, that you care for him. You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Now, when the psalmist is saying this, he's not talking about one specific Son of Man, right? He's talking about humanity. What is humanity? What what are humans that you would grant them dominion? What are humans that you would even be mindful of us? We're just a speck of nothing, and yet you're mindful of us. And then you pair that with what Daniel says in Daniel chapter 7. You see this vision of a son of man, a specific human being who is lifted up and who is given dominion. And then you pair that with what Paul says about Jesus being the the new Adam, the second Adam. Jesus is the ultimate human being. Jesus is the the ultimate Adam, the firstborn of humanity, the firstborn of creation, and he's been given dominion, and then you preach that collectively, and what Jesus has been given, we get to share in. Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus is the Son of Man, or the Messiah is the Son of Man. Number three, Jesus is the Holy One, Psalm 16. I've set the Lord always before me, verse 8, I set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. This is what God does for his Holy One, but it's also what he does for his Holy Ones. Jesus is the forerunner. Jesus is the firstborn. Jesus is the ultimate one, the ultimate holy one, the ultimate son of man. But what he experienced, we will experience. And so if David could say he had confidence that he would not be abandoned to Sheol, and this is fulfilled in Jesus, then it will also be fulfilled in us because through Jesus, we are God's holy ones. And then finally, Psalm 110, the priestly king. Again, the Hebrew writer loves this, loves this passage. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. David says, the Lord, Yahweh, says these things to my Lord. So there's a, another king coming who is above me, and Yahweh says to him that he will be not only king, but he will be priest, and not only king, and not only priest, but king and priest forever. And so again, these categories that we use to describe Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, the ultimate Son of Man, the Holy One that God would raise from the dead, the priestly king, These ideas, these categories aren't invented. They're deeply rooted in the anticipation that the psalmist had. They were deeply rooted in the anticipation that God's people had, that God would deliver his people through his son, through the son of man, through the holy one, through the priestly king. So just a few points as conclusions. Our sermon should reflect the celebration and the anticipation of the Psalms. 
to celebrate what God has done historically in, in everything that he's done, in what he's done in Israel's story and how that story culminates in Jesus and what he's done in Jesus, and then anticipate that that's going to be true of us. And that what God has done for Jesus in raising him from the dead, what God has done for his people by keeping his promises, and what God has done by providing redemption, sanctification, forgiveness, salvation, he is doing and will do for you. And so we have to hold on to these things, celebration and anticipation. Anticipation can sound rather negative when we're preaching sermons of lament or even imprecatory sermons, psalms. But again, we're, that's the only way to practice what Jesus preaches, isn't it? The only way to practice what Jesus preaches in turning the other cheek or going the extra mile when someone sues you for one piece of clothing, giving them the other, or as Paul says in Romans chapter 12, when your enemy's hungry, you feed him. When he's thirsty, you give him something to drink. The only way to do that is to turn your enemies over to God. And the only way to do that is by saying, I trust you, God, to deal with the evil. I trust you, God, to deal with the pain. I trust you, God, to deal with sin. I trust you to deal with injustice. I trust you to deal with death and to turn those things over to God. And when we preach on those things and we preach on the very real feelings and the anger and the doubts and the fears and the pains that we all have, then we are helping our congregations to anticipate the salvation of God and then also to celebrate what God has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. Secondly, our sermons should speak to people's feelings and faith. It's okay to affirm people's feelings. I think sometimes we're, we're anxious to correct people's feelings. Don't, don't be worried. Don't be afraid. In fact, whenever I would read those verses, even as a preacher, I would read, don't worry, don't be afraid. As a worrier, I would get more worried because now I'm worried that I'm doing something wrong by worrying, right? And it's this vicious cycle, don't worry. Okay, well, now I'm worried that I was worried. Now, now I'm even more worried. And so it's just this vicious cycle. And we get up and we tell our congregations, don't be afraid, don't worry. You're not supposed to. It's a sin. It's a, it's a sign of a lack of faith. No, no, no. Affirm. It's natural. It's expected that when you face death, when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it makes sense that you would be afraid. But when God says, don't fear, he's saying, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to worry. Why? Because I'm with you. My rod, my staff, they will comfort you. So we have to acknowledge that. We have to speak to their feelings and speak to their faith and encourage them to have faith. It's okay that people are happy, it's okay that people are rejoicing, but even when people are happy and rejoicing, we have to make sure that they're happy and rejoicing in the things that they should be happy and rejoicing in. You know, when Paul was in prison and he writes the book of Philippians, he says he's learned the secret to fa facing plenty and lack. And I thought, well, wait a second, why is there a secret to facing plenty? There's no secret to that, that's easy, right? It's easy to face plenty. No, it's not. No, it's not. And right now, in our world, we're seeing the devastating effects of rejoicing in our stuff, rejoicing in our comfort, rejoicing in things going the way they've always gone. 
I said to my boys when our power started going out in cycles, I said, guys, listen. I said, most of the world, most of the world, not just historically, but today, most of the world lives most of their life in uncomfortable situations. For us, discomfort is an anomaly. I didn't use the word anomaly, but it doesn't happen very often, does it? For us, comfort is the norm. Things are normally comfortable, but for most of the world, that's not true. For most of the world, they face discomfort all the time. And so it's okay for people to be happy and joyful, but we don't need to just affirm that like it's okay to to be rejoicing in the wrong things. Even when they're happy and joyful and everything is comfortable, we need to encourage them to anchor their joy, to count their blessings in Jesus Christ and Him crucified, not in their stuff, because their stuff could be gone tomorrow. But we need to speak to both people's feelings and to their faith. Finally, our sermons should both comfort and convict. It's abusive to just convict, right? It's abusive to just say, you're wrong, stop doing that. Don't live that way, stop doing those things. But it's negligent to just comfort. The Psalms do both. When David says, the Lord is my shepherd, it convicts us for saying, you know what, all too often this politician is my shepherd. All too often this thing is my shepherd. All too often this is my shepherd, or that's my shepherd, or I put my trust in this, or when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I look to this to comfort me. It convicts us. If we preach it right and read it right, it convicts us, and it says, no, Yahweh is your shepherd, and only Yahweh can be your shepherd. But then it also comforts us, and it says, when Yahweh is your shepherd, here's the results of that here's what happens. This is what it looks like. So I think our, sol- our sermons, whether we're preaching from the Psalms or from any other text, I think our sermons need to both comfort and convict. Well, I would open it up to questions, but the guys that could answer your questions, I think, have left, so I'm not sure that we could do that, but I'm happy to facilitate any conversation or questions we might have. Yes, sir. That's a great question, and I, I, I'm glad you brought that up. The way I tend to do, I tend to preach every sermon as an expository sermon. Like, I never preach a topical sermon. That's just me. I, I don't trust myself enough to deal with the context of all of the verses that I might pull in. So very rarely will I get away from one passage during a sermon. So I, I, might, I might cover multiple verses within one book, but most of the time I'm gonna stay in one, one chapter in a sermon. Uh, but for a sermon series, I, I do a topical series. So I might do, like I did, uh, Psalms about Thanksgiving and gratitude. So I might do a, a series on, it might be an even broader series than that, and, a chapter from Psalms might be one sermon from a series that deals with a, a broader topic that goes even beyond the Psalms. But yeah, I, so I do all kinds of series. So some series will stay within a book and some series will do a, a topical theme that covers multiple chapters of the Bible. But in one given sermon, I'll, I'll, I'll try to stay in one text.
That's a great question. I, I, I mean, for me, it, it's just all about digging until, until I find that. I, that's, I don't feel like I've prepared to preach the sermon until I find something that excites me. So if I'm, then that's the hardest to do with a passage that is most familiar. So if you're preaching Psalm 23, it's really hard to preach something that feels fresh, but I don't want to preach a sermon that I'm not excited about because I know if I'm not excited about it, they certainly won't be excited to hear it. So I want to dig until I find something that obviously not something that's never been seen before, because if you find something that's never been seen before, it's probably wrong, but if I want to I dig until I see something I haven't seen before, until I get excited about it, until I find a way that it connects with what's going on in people's lives right now that I, I hadn't realized before, and so I just, I just want to be like a dog with a bone and hold on to it until I figure out what about this text is exciting? What, what excites me about this? And then I want to start by telling them, this is why this is exciting for you as well. Yeah, that's a great question. I'm sorry, I forgot to repeat the other questions that were asked, but the question is how much preparation goes into a series or into the sermons before it actually gets there. So the way I do it is about October or so, I, I want to plan out all of the, the series that I'm going to do, and I typically do a month-long series. Sometimes uh, the Jenkins brothers will do, they, they gave me this idea of doing a family series between Mother's Day and Father's Day. I love doing a Mother's Day to Father's Day series, so that's a, one of the longer series that I do, but I will plan out the series, which just, for me, it's just one broad idea, and it may be the title and a subtitle to the series, and then I will go in and title every sermon, and my titles are really bland. I mean, I just grab a phrase from that text, but I'll, I'll, I'll give a scripture reading and a title for that, that sermon. So when the year starts, so at the beginning of the year, I will have 52 weeks or however many I'm preaching of titles, scripture readings, and the series they belong to, but that's about it. Then before the month gets there, before that series starts, and I usually like to do that a month ahead of time, so before I'm done with the previous series, I will, I will have the, the, the coming series planned out. I will create a summary sheet, especially for our worship leaders and for our elders so that they know what, I'll give each sermon a summary, uh, the scripture reading, the title, and I'll give a summary for the whole series as a whole. So I'll prepare not only the yearly calendar, but then each series gets its own summary sheet, and that comes about a month or two before the series begins. And then I don't actually write my sermon until the week of. And a lot of times, so I'm, I'm writing my sermon on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, and it's amazing to me how when I planned it, 
Again, it could have been six or eight months beforehand when I gave it a title and a scripture reading, and I thought I had a general idea of where it was going to go. Both circumstances in the world have changed, but also I, I haven't necessarily found the thing that makes me just can't wait to preach this thing. I just, yeah, I haven't found that yet until the week, and so sometimes it, it takes... It takes a few days, even though I, I have the broad idea and I have the scripture and I have the title. But for me, that's a whole lot easier to go in on Monday and know the general direction I'm going to go because it's going to take a few days of just mulling over that passage and that idea uh, just for several days before I find what I think will really resonate with people.